Okay, we are continuing again with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. You can see the title at this, at the top, and we are actually going back to something we had done through from March through August, and I just didn't want to continue in that vein at the beginning of the school year when we're sometimes getting new students uh, for a number of reasons. So... Um, we are also doing a Baptizing the Holy Spirit series, which it's going to be important for you to differentiate if you're looking at podcast, the 2017 version, because the version that we normally take people through uh, before we pray for them to get baptized in the Holy Spirit is only four chapters, and we are going to kind of stay with that, because there's no use. if you notice in the New Testament, most people got baptized in the Holy Spirit the day of their conversion, or within a few days. There's no examples of someone taking longer than a week after they came to Christ before they got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, that happens a lot in America today because we're living in a culture of natural-mindedness and unbelief. And uh, obviously, the baptism in the Spirit brings you into the reality and the power of Christ's kingdom and takes it out of the realm of religion and into the realm of relationship in reality, so, um, and out of the realm of just uh, religious theoretical ideas in our head, and and maybe some some religious practices of going to church or whatever. But it bursts the reality and the power of God's kingdom into your spirit and your heart, and gives you a major tool in your arsenal to to. Uh, to build up your spirit and edify your spirit and enjoy the peace and power and presence of God. But that is no guarantee that you're going to walk in the spirit and learn to live in the power of the spirit. And that's a very, it's a very important thing that you understand that the Bible says those who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. A characteristic of being Christ-like, of being the father's son, uh, is that you're led by the spirit of God. And you can't have it both ways. You can't be led by your lust and be led by the Spirit of God. You can't be led by your fears and be led by the Spirit of God. You can't be led by your selfish ambitions and be led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is antithetical to the ways of the sin nature. And, you know, like I'm often in marriage counseling reading people uh, Galatians chapter 5, which gives a very thorough list of the, the deeds of the flesh and a very thorough list, list of the fruits of the Spirit. And if you noticed, uh, at least half of the deeds of the flesh have to do with relationships. Enmity, strife, you know, unforgiveness, uh, outburst of anger, etc. And you can't be led by the Spirit and led by the flesh. They are at war with each other, and one has got to crucify the other. That's as simple as that. And then one of the things that it goes on to do after it lists the, the fruits of the Spirit, uh, continuing to talk about relationships, and, and the, the, he starts to talk about the fruit of walking in the flesh at the end of the chapter, and he says, if you bite and devour one another... Take care lest you be consumed by one another. I'm often amazed when I arbitrate uh, squabbles in, uh, in single households or in, in marriages 
how childish they can be. And if you like, wow, you're just having a flesh fest here. Like, grow up a little, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, you make a choice as a Christian to be empowered by the Spirit and not led by the flesh. And you have to make that choice every day. You, you, that's why I always say you have to kind of re-get gospel-based and grace-based and empowered by the Spirit and encounter God every day. You know, your, your body, your, your old nature, etc., loves a lifestyle. A lot of people really get accustomed to waking up in the flesh. And people will even develop a doctrine that I have a right to be grouchy and not, not very focused and foggy and, and not very responsible when I'm waking up. In other words, I can indulge my flesh until I get like two cups of coffee. That's nonsense. You can choose to be in the spirit the second you wake up. And you know what? If you're going to be married, you better learn how to do that. <laughs> you know, because you need to treat the, the people in your family correctly. As my dad used to teach me, he used to say, Greg, the hardest place to live out your walk with Christ is in your own family, in your own home, among the people you're around the most. And that's precisely where God's called you to lead it. That's why you have to have, if, you don't, if you're not married, make sure you live with three or four other people, two, three, something. You need single households. You need them for, because you're missing the crosses that God wants to bring you without them. And you can't really have crosses that well with worldly people uh, because they, they're not going to, you know, like they're not going to fight fair. You know, what, you know I, I pity anyone who has to live with a bunch of people who aren't early Christians. I wouldn't do, ever do that. I never did that after I became a Christian. I became a Christian at age 17, and I moved out right away and said, I ain't doing this, and, and, and my parents were even Christians. But I wasn't going to do that at home. Not all my brothers and sisters were Christians, and it wasn't necessarily run a house run by Christ's principles, and I wasn't going to live there. All right, so let's get into this. These five hindrances are listed at the bottom of your page, and we uh, just listed them last time. And I'm not going to go into all of them this time because I want to give the rest of this message about a half an hour's worth. We got started late. Hopefully I won't run over too much. But uh, I'm, I, I want to give the rest of this message to the first one, incomplete conversion. Now, if you notice, it says they're contemporary, compromised, and confused Christianity. It's kind of hard to, to tell when people first start walking with us is that more that they're confused or compromised. But we've almost never, with a handful of exceptions, ever had anybody walk in our doors that's a pretty solid, mature, not, not half-confused Christian. It just doesn't happen because of the nature of the Christianity out there today. Okay, uh, most people are more pre-evangelized than they are evangelized when we meet them. They might have uh, a vague idea that God is true and Jesus rose from the dead or something, but understanding the gospel of the kingdom of God 
and, uh, and being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. That's a process that we are, you know, attempting to help people uh, be, be birthed into their life. And you get people that have gone to church all their life that have never had a, anywhere near a biblically complete conversion. So um, these areas about uh, the, um, these five hindrances to the baptism in the Spirit, they are also hindrances to staying filled with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit, living a Spirit-centered, Spirit-led life. Hopefully we're clear on that now. And so that would apply. So occasionally we get people who come to our church and they like everything about our church except they decide they don't want to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And uh, we, that happens sometimes for a few weeks, sometimes for a few months. Rarely, doesn't usually happen more than six months or so, but it, it can. And, uh, but the truth of the matter is if they're a born-again Christian and the Spirit of God is operative in their life, then these things still apply. Because you get, you, occasionally you get people who are not baptized in the Spirit that are fairly Spirit-led, and you can sense the joy and the peace and the power of the Holy Spirit about them. And then you uh, occasionally get people who are not baptized in the Spirit that don't show much of the Spirit's activity in their life. And they're pretty dry, and, and, uh, and they tend to process everything mentally, but there's not much anointing going on in their spirit and so forth. And uh, sometimes God actually starts to change that through the worship and being around the anointing and around the worship, even before they get baptized in the Spirit. They start sensing the presence of God. One of the reasons I encourage people to be around worship two and three times a week is it'll help you begin to step into the realm that you're eventually supposed to live in where you're sensing the Spirit all the time, where the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit is your daily, hourly way of life, and you're empowered by Him every day. And I hope you get to the point uh, where you become kind of a Jesus Holy Spirit junkie in the sense that you really can't function that well without the power of the Spirit flowing in your life. Because that's just not a, your normal, normal self anymore. That's really what God intends for you. God intends you to, to be so empowered by the Spirit and so filled with the Spirit and so led by the Spirit is the Spirit's reality is your reality. So if Jesus is saying, walk on the water, that's reality. And so many of your fleshly habits and your fears and your natural mindedness and so forth, are you don't you doubt your doubts anymore instead of doubting the Lord. All right, so uh, today we're going to look at the one common hindrance called biblically incomplete conversions. And in order to do that, I've got note one and note two at the top of your uh, second page. Note one, let's review the steps in, in becoming a Christian. So when you become a Christian, you, it, it can also be called receiving Jesus Christ. Okay, so John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, that is Jesus, he gave the right, the exousia, which means the, the power and the authority. It's a combined word. It's both power and authority. Like a cop has his power. Is, you know, he's got his gun and his other cops he can call and so forth. He can enforce 
the, the, the uniform and the badge represent his authority, but he can back that authority up with power if needed. Right? And so what happens when you, become, when you receive Jesus Christ is you actually get the power to be a son of God. That is to have the law of God written on your heart and your mind and you're empowered to live it. So that receiving Jesus Christ always involves two things happening. One is the new birth. That is your spirit outside Christ was born existing. You've, you you experience your spirit before you're a Christian, but you experience it as kind of things like boredom or longing for something more. Because in your spirit was meant to be filled with the spirit of God and living a great adventure with God. A supernatural, unnormal, uh, supernaturally normal life led by the spirit of God. So that, that's what happens at the new birth. But one of the things that's happening all the time anymore is people you sense God's spirit at work in have not really been gone through step two, that is, they're not converted. And in conversion, you come under conviction of sin, you're granted confession of sin and repentance, renunciation of sin, and so forth. And in conversion, you trust in and follow and become a disciple of Jesus. So today, we're going to look at hopefully 12 ways in which Christians today Christians in sort of air quotes, um, people who think they're Christians today are less than completely converted. Oh, they've prayed a sinner's prayer, and they've been told then that, you know, there's a reason why there has to be so much teaching about, like, if you've prayed the sinner's prayer, then don't worry about your salvation, you're going to heaven. <laughs> That really wouldn't be needed if we were actually converting people because they would have one of the inward signs. We're going to look mostly at outward signs today. But one of the inward signs is you have the witness of the Holy Spirit when you're converted. And you know that you know that you know that you're a son of God. And you know that you belong to him. And you know that you're converted. And you know that you're progressing in relationship with him. And you know that you know that you know that. And you couldn't possibly be shaken by any doubts. That's what Romans 8 tells us. So now, the next thing I want you to, be, to, to uh, make note of is that sometimes um, it's possible not to always be, it's not that easy to discern where conversion stops and where the dual process called sanctification and maturation starts. All converted Christians are gradually being sanctified by the work of Scripture, by the work of the church, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the delivery systems of grace. And being sanctified simply means being set apart to God. So that means you have less attitudes that are hindering your walk with God, less fears, less uh, habits, less bondages, uh, less addictions, less whatever, less fleshly thinking. Less, less inability to work under authority and all the things that it takes to mature in, in, in Christ. 
You know, a person who's truly converted won't bounce around from church to church all the time. Uh, every time they hear, get confronted with something they don't want to hear. You know, uh, people who are immature, you know, tend to bounce around whenever they don't, you know, well, I don't like your opinion. I'll go. You know, when I, I was raised in a certain tradition where you would con have to confess your sins and so forth, and we learned to forum shop which guys we wanted to confess our sins to. <laughs> you know, we didn't want, you know, we didn't want God, like, and you learned which sins not to confess. <laughs> you know, if you didn't really want to deal with God, like, well, I'm not going to tell them about my stealing problem because they're going to bring up that restitution issue. <laughs> All right, so... I sometimes uh, think of uh, the old cars that used to have, uh, if you looked at the heater, I'll turn around a little bit, on your, le on your left would be uh, the cold side or whatever, and so it'd be like a dark blue, and as it progressed to the right, it would get light blue and eventually white. And on the left, you'd have uh, your dark red or burgundy that became red, and then it, as it progressed toward the center, it became pink and then eventually white and, and kind of the blue and the white overlapped each other. Sometimes it's a little difficult to tell where conversion has stopped and sanctification and maturation have begun because all sanctification and maturation is always being more thoroughly converted. And none of us are completely converted. Uh, that doesn't mean we're not going to heaven, because I know we've reduced Christianity to, like, whether you go to heaven and hell is the, the only thing that you're supposed to worry about. You know, like, heaven and hell are byproducts of, of living life the, the right way. It's, when you know the Lord, yes, of course you're going to heaven, but heaven is entering you now. And heaven will just be graduation uh, that you're well ready for. So... Um, One of the things that's important, so therefore, when you're working with either yourself or you're helping others grow, it's not always important uh, to, to kind of totally know whether, you know, this is a conversion issue or is this a discipleship uh, sanctification or maturation issue. But what is important is that it produces godliness. So let's look at just a couple scriptures along that line. Like, you're understanding the, the gospel correctly if it's producing holiness and godly character and Christ-like character, not legalistic cultural holiness, but real, motivational, attitudinal, is that a word? Uh, holiness. So let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4. It says... Uh, if anyone advocates a different teaching and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the teaching conforming to godliness, then he is conceited and understands nothing. Don't you love how the, the, wonder, the Bible forgot to read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Like, no one would even read that verse today. <laughs> You're all conceited and know nothing. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes, 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 disputes about words 
out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Does that remind you of any message that's popular in the earth today? It's called the prosperity gospel. The godliness is a means of gain. Yow. Titus 1, 1, Paul talks, uh, introduces his letter to Titus by saying he's a, he's a doulos. A bond, he, in other words, he calls himself a bondservant of Christ before he calls himself an apostle. Very important. You know, if those of you who are aspiring to leadership in ministry, that's really, really, really important issue. You're a deacon before you're a pastor. You know, first and foremost, you're a table waiter. And you, you came to wait on God and whatever his interests are in his people. Paul, a doulos, a bondservant, a table waiter of God, to those chosen of God in the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. See, if, if, the, if the doctrine and the teaching is real, it will produce godliness. If it's not causing you to become more godliness, godliness, to experience more godliness or have the more fruit of godliness, I can't speak English today. Uh, I'm going to take Deanna's English as a secondary language. Uh, <laughs> if, you know, if it's not helping toward godliness, and if you don't see godliness progressing in your life, then go back to your understanding of truth. Go back to the gospel. The gospel produces godliness. Paul talks about that in so many places. In 1 Timothy 1, he, remind, he tells Timothy to remain at Ephesus so that he may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor pay attention to myths. And I had to cut some out to fit it on the page. Which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And what is that administration of God by faith? It's, uh, what's, what's the goal of all these doctrines? The do goal of our doctrines is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's very practical. All right, so let's look at 12 missing fruits. And I got about two minutes for each one. So one is um, lacking conviction. Now, here's what I mean. John 16, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you remember when we covered the uh, part of this series that was element um, six, receiving Jesus Christ, one of the words we looked at was the word conviction. You cannot bring yourself under conviction. That is the work of scripture and the Holy Spirit and your brothers and sisters speaking scripture by the Holy Spirit to you. Right? So Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the, that the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We're not able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. I always know I'm dealing with someone fairly immature still when they, always, when they seem to think they know who they are. <laughs> like, you know, well, you know, I'm this way, and you know, I'm that way. Well, you know, I do this. And I do, you know what? Uh, you can't even know your own heart till God begins to show it to you. And one of, the, one of the marks of being drawn to Christ is to come under deep conviction of your sins. That was something that guys like Wesley and Whitfield and lots of people throughout church history have known 
that we don't know today. We're, we're, we want to get a notch on our belt and get a, you know, like that gunslinger, twirl them and shot two more down and by getting them up to some altar call. Don't pray with anyone that's not under deep conviction. What I do a lot of times is I let people come to the church and I let them hear the messages and I hope that someday they'll get serious enough to start talking with one of the pastors and, and, and or one of the leadership team and start to really get discipled and really grow. Be, because our hearts are so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that, you know, I, people say, well, do you think you have people who come to Grace Christian Fellowship that aren't converts? I said, I'm hoping we have some that are converts. No, 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 I'm pretty sure we have some that are converts and some that are disciples. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's more than half. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. You know, that God knows. But the truth of the matter is, is sin has a way of being very deceitful. And you can kind of see when people start to come under a deeper sense of conviction. Uh, I have John Gray's permission to, to say this, but that was really the issue when John Gray first came to our church, who we're raising up as an elder now. I can still remember the day I was in my kitchen making John Gray some toast and eggs and pancakes, and we were going to eat, and, and uh, he's standing to the right of me making toast and all this stuff, and I said, John, I, I, I want you to read the book of Romans. Because you basically have this attitude that you're a very good person, you're a pretty good person, and you just need a little churching up. And you're never going to make any progress in the Christian life till you just see how deep your depravity goes. Until you come under some serious conviction that really disturbs you. You know, people are all afraid of any kind of preaching that might disturb people. Soft preaching leads to hard hearts. Hard hearts leads to soft preaching. I remember I was sharing the gospel at a party in the dorms in Bowling Green once, and this, this brand new brother that I was kind of teaching how to do it uh, changed this. This guy was coming under deep conviction, and this brother, uh, Catherine knows who, who I'm talking about, uh, who's, a, who's a doctor now, a physician, but he, uh, he had just come to Christ, and uh, he changed the subject to hockey. Right in, in the middle of the, and I, when we're walking away, I said, why did you change the subject to hockey when the Holy Spirit was really starting to move on him? He goes, well, it looked like he was getting a little uncomfortable. And then I was like, and I was like, yeah, that was the goal. <laughs> you know what? If you haven't ever gotten uncomfortable while reading your Bible or under preaching, that's a problem. The, the holy, when you read the Gospels and you think about the holiness of Jesus, that should disturb you sometimes. Perhaps you should be on your face in your study sometimes. I'm always hoping that someday Stephen will dust it. Because <laughs> like getting on your face when, it hasn't, when there's been no vacuuming, that's terrible. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, <laughs> but you're better off there even if in the, with the dust mites and everything. Well, I'm, I, I could do a whole message on this. We lack conviction, and part of this, one of the issues that I want to get at, I, I can't get at all of them. One of the reasons is because of our antinomianism, and what antinomianism does is it leads to legalism. And I wish I've taught on that quite a few times. If you don't know how that works, see me at the lunchtime today. 
Um, but antinomianism always leads to legalism. And legalism has a deception in it because you tend to think that the sins God's concerned about are much shallower issues than, than what he is concerned about. You know? And, what it, and so what you get is you get those kind of people. That was really John Gray's problem. He'd grown up in the church. He'd not, never been a drunkard. He'd never stolen any cars or raped anybody or murdered anybody or except in his heart. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and so, but that's a, you know, like that's a problem sometimes is sometimes when you've had legalistic understandings of what God's concerned about, you just don't see the depth of your own sin. And you know what? That's why the religious are harder to lead to Christ than any other category. People who've been brought up and, you know, a lot of performance-based externals and stuff are the most difficult people to reach. There's a reason for that. So that's enough about conviction. Oh boy, I'm not going to finish this one today, I guess. Performance-based gospel versus a grace-based gospel. You know, Michael... Horton is termed the phrase I love called moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, but we bring up our kids kind of moralizing these days. Be a good little girl, a good little boy. Da, 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 da. And uh, the truth of the matter is, is we don't bring them up understanding the utter necessity and totality of grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The reason we need the Ten Commandments, I'm actually uh, really enjoying a book that I'm going to be recommending a lot called Basic Christianity by John Stott. Had you read it when you were first coming to Christ. And, um, you know, on his, one of his chapters on sin, he goes through each of the Ten Commandments and has a discussion about each one. If you have never really thought how you've broken every one of the Ten Commandments, Spend some time doing that. Use this book to get started. Think about what the Ten Commandments are. You know, thou shall not murder. If you've even been angry in your heart, you're guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. That, you know what, if we weren't so word-hardened, you know, we have so many commercials and Coke adds life and Pepsi gives you the spirit and Dotson saves. and You know, we, we are so word-hardened in our culture that we hear the words of God and we, they don't impact us enough. The Bible says, blessed is the man who trembles at God's word. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The reason conviction is so important is because grace-based is so important. Remember, in Romans 10, Paul says that he bears his countrymen witness that they had a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, they were seeking to establish their own. Is there any of that left in your spirit, in your heart? Seeking to establish his own. That's why we have whole teachings on how to recognize that in yourself. So, uh, 
Thirdly, lack in repentance. Now, there's a teaching that we have that you can email Deanna or Stephen to get uh, called Eight Definitions of Repentance. There's about 160 New Testament verses that use repentant, the word repent. And um, that particular teaching has about 40 of them on it. Because it can, you know. But you should really think about all eight statements in that teaching about what repentance are. How repentance always leads to fruit. How repentance is a daily part of the Christian life. How repentance must be radical and foundational. That means it has to go to the root of our being. Repentance, the last one, is that repentance is not so much from, but to the seeking of God. You know, like most Christians say, God is just all right. But are we really that zealous about seeking God? I can tell we're not because we can't get that higher percentage of people at the 930 meeting. <laughs> really? Uh, are we, you know, if you're a seeker of God, you, you'll get more. You know, you'll spend, you won't let uh, watching some whatever. I'm amazed sometimes when I hear conversations and like everyone knows all this stuff about all the TV shows. And I'm like, I haven't ever heard of that show. And I'm not trying to say you can't watch TV. Because I watch sports but, uh, on Saturdays. But um, the truth of the matter is, I'm amazed sometimes how many movies and TV shows people know. And I'm like, how do you even find time to do that? It, it kind of blows my mind a little sometimes, to be honest. People are always telling me, well, that's Doctor Who or Doctor Strangelove or what something and it's like I'm like what but how much scripture do you actually know how much are you actually living and have you ever read a good book on biblical economics or uh, how much apologetics do you know I mean the amount of time that people they actually figure out that, that today the average kid by the time they're eight has spent enough time watching television to have to have earned a master's degree if they'd have spent that time studying. Do you know that the average kid has 80 times more time in front of the television than he has sitting around the dinner table with his parents? It's one of the reasons why you should go back and listen to John's teachings about family devotions and read the book on our foundational list about family devotions by Joel Beaking. Like, our... Do, in single households, do you guys have family devotions before you eat? I sure hope you do. Because the world has given you its message all day. Take 10 minutes to have a, sing a psalm together, a song together and read a portion of scripture and, and have a prayer. You'd be surprised if you do that every night with your kids how much it will form them in Christ. And it doesn't take more, like, don't, you don't have to drive them away from the faith by having an hour and a half devotions. Ten minutes can do it. <laughs> Repentance is not just about turning away from things. It's about turning toward an aggressive, assertive, active lifestyle of seeking Scripture, seeking fellowship, seeking to prioritize your life according to the ways of God. Seeking the presence of God in an active way in your home. 
do people ever comment to you? I hope they do. This is something that I cherish, that people comment like, well, when I come in this house, I sense the presence of God. I hope that's true of your house. I hope people sense the presence of God when they come to the front porch before they ring the bell and even in the driveway. You can seek that and you can cultivate that and that's very achievable. Well, let's do one or two more because we got started late, but we're past time. Renunciation. If there's anything that's missing in today's Christianity, it's renunciation. You know, the scripture says we have renounced the things hidden. The word hidden is the same word for occult. It's amazing to me how many people have hidden things. You know, I always know that people are still preferring darkness to light when they say, well, I don't really like community too much. <laughs> you know, because, you know, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. First John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I always know that someone's a false convert when I, uh, when I do any kind of single brother counseling or any family counseling or any marriage counseling, anyone who thinks it's the other person's fault all the time is not converted. They're religious. They may even be baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues and, claim, and go to church a lot, but the beginning of the gospel is to come under conviction of sins that causes you to confess your sins, confess meaning say the same God says, to repent of your sins, and to renounce them. And renounce means to disavow, disown. It's a covenantal ceremonial word. To renounce something, you've got to do it formally. You may need to burn certain things to renounce things. You might need to get rid of your television for a season of your life. You might need to, you know, get rid of a lot of things. Movies. You know, when I became a Christian, I had to burn all of my rock albums. All of them. That was before there were CDs. <laughs> there were old vinyl things. Now they'd probably be worth something. I, you know, people collect that stuff now. Uh, I burned it. You know, if you've never had a good go through your movies and burn a bunch of them, or your books, or, your, or especially like video games and magazines, you're probably, you're, what you're doing is you're allowing all these lassos to be tied around you, and you're trying to walk with the Lord, but you've got too many things that you haven't renounced. The number one thing I deal with pastorally is people who are making very little progress in the Lord because they have too many things they've not disavowed or disowned. And that can be soul ties relationally, by the way. That can be mothers' illegal uh, attitude toward their children where they're making idols out of their children. I want you to love your children, but they're God's children. Steward them wisely. And don't protect them from God. I know that's not popular in our day and age. But you know what? You can make an idol out of every kind of relationship. You really can. Renounce uh, in computer terms would be to have no shared files no connectivity. Like, I don't know this person's uh, phone number anymore. I don't know, you know, I can't text them. I'm not friends with them on Facebook. I don't, you know, you know, that I'm not just saying this about relationships. This, this has got to be about lots of things. 
Like, I've burned up these movies. They're not part of my life anymore. That could be about old relationships you had with the opposite sex or all sorts of things. Um, last thing we'll comment on for today is the Savior versus Lordship debate. Well, somebody, Deanna, mark the spots and remind me this coming week to start there. Um, there's actually a debate in, in evangelical circles called the Lordship versus um, Savior debate. Grudem addresses it in his Systematic Theology book. So if you're in that class, when you get to, I think it's the seventh unit of the one you're about to do, if you're taking it now, he talks about that debate. It is a sign of how much death and confusion is in the church today that that debate exists. The proponents of Dallas Theological Seminary and Southern Baptist Seminaries and so forth believe you can make God, Jesus, your Savior without making him your Lord. But that is just so crazy because what he's saving you from is being your own God. The original sin was the desire to be God ourselves. And until you renounce your own lordship in favor of his, you cannot be saved. That's what salvation is all about. So we'll pick that up next week.